Good evening, everybody. Yes, it's Farage, but with me, Patrick Christie's, I am covering for the main man all week. Let's get stuck in, shall we? So, the runners and riders are in, in terms of the Tory leadership race. Now, I'm convinced that the Conservatives have committed a great national act of political suicide. I get that Boris was embroiled in sleaze. I get that his personal life was a bit of a mess. I get that there are scandals upon scandals. But in a weird way, there's something very honest about that, isn't there? Because that's Boris, isn't it? That's who he is. That's the man that millions of people voted for. And despite securing a huge public mandate, it wasn't the public who booted him out, was it? No, it was politicians. But that's done now, and we have to move on. That's over. And what's a key issue going forward, OK? Let's look at the future and not the past. Well, unfortunately, it's the same issue as always. The same issue that nobody has managed to get right. Immigration. Tony Blair had education, education, education. The next Tory leader has immigration, immigration, immigration. You can slap the word illegal in front of that as well. Now, according to reports, all the candidates have come out in favour of the Rwanda deal, with the possible exception of Jeremy Hunt. Important you get that name right. Well, to that, I would simply say, what Rwanda deal? We've basically just given Rwanda a load of foreign aid, haven't we? This is not an immigration deal. This is a foreign aid deal. There's been absolutely no result whatsoever. The cost of living crisis is massive. There's no doubt about that. And that'll be a big issue for people on the doorstep. But eventually, due to natural markets and economic forces, that will sort itself out. What will not sort itself out is mass illegal immigration. Now, tomorrow, I'll be heading to a hotel to reveal yet another devastating case of the sheer toll that illegal immigration is having on this country. You do not want to miss what I'll reveal tomorrow, let me tell you that much. But it's one thing all the Tory candidates saying they support the idea of sending people to Rwanda. It's another thing actually doing it, isn't it? The British public, you, deserve results, not empty promises. Well, I'll tell you what we don't deserve the desecration of our public services, a national housing crisis, a government who prioritises people who come here illegally over homeless military veterans. Mark my words, if the next leader doesn't get hold of immigration, doesn't actually enact the Rwanda deal or something a bit like it, they'll be dead before they even start. Well, there we go. I'm going to ask you now, my lovely audience, thank you very much for tuning in, everybody. Like I said, I'll be filling in for Farage all week. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I want to lob it over to you. We are the People's Channel, so get involved. Don't be shy. What's the most important issue for you at this particular leadership race? I've nailed my colours to the mast there. I don't think I'm wrong, particularly. It'd be weird if I did. But I think immigration will be a massive, massive issue for most people and who can actually sort it out. Like I've said, it's one thing, basically... Uh, trying to sort it out, it's another thing actually doing it. Well, get in touch by email. You can email farage at GB News. And I've got a, a team beavering away here. You can, you, can almost, you can almost hear them beavering away. Farage at GB News and basically, dot UK, by the way. And basically, you can tweet us as well. Use the hashtag Farage on GB News. They're going to be picking out the best ones, OK? And we'll go to that. And that question again, OK, in case you missed it, is literally, what's the most important issue for you at this Tory leadership election. So what is it that people could say or do, OK, that would really get your vote? That email, one more time, is farage at gbnews.uk. You can also tweet us using the hashtag farage on GB News. Right, we've got loads coming your way, and so what we're going to do later on in the show is potentially, by the way, potentially go live to Sir Graham Brady, who's going to be giving you 
a breakdown of what's going to happen, the timeline, OK, the timeline, which is important. Also, we've been tipped off. We've been to, we've got our sources here at GB News, I'm telling you. We've been tipped off that potentially there's going to be a massive Conservative home poll release. The results supposedly are astonishing uh, about who actual Tory voters want to be their next leader. That's supposed to be dropping very, very shortly. But right now, I believe we can go to our political editor, Darren McCaffrey, who's right there on College Green for us right now. Darren, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Look, we're talking about the runners and the riders. What's the latest? Yeah, we are indeed. Well, we're just waiting, as you've just been alluding to, for Sir Graham Brady. He was due here about 10 minutes ago, running a little late. He's currently at Conservative Party headquarters. They are, frankly, both of them, working out the timetable for these uh, elections. If we just kind of pan around a little bit, you'll see there's, uh, there's an awful lot of the waiting press here uh, waiting for Graham Brady to turn up, make a statement live on College Green just outside uh, Parliament, as I say, hopefully in the next couple of minutes. And he is going to set out that timetable, first of all, for the initial process and that is uh, with MPs so they're going to decide who the final two are in a series of ballots Patrick over the next 10 days or so they need to get down to the final two before Parliament goes into recess Thursday week so what that is about 10 days isn't it that process is going to start effectively tomorrow when nominations officially open we know there's lots of runners and riders 11 so far though pretty Patel could still throw a hat into the ring making it a dozen then on Wednesday we're expecting again we're going to hear this officially from Graham Brady very soon expecting the first round of votes we could see a second round on Thursday and so on and so on until we get to the middle of next week and they get down to the final two those those two then essentially go to the membership of the Conservative Party so there will be lots of campaigning lots of hostings lots of political debates involving the final two candidates before the membership of the Conservative Party, the 100,000 plus members, get to decide who effectively is going to be the new Conservative leader and thus our new Prime Minister. The other thing we're looking out for tonight from Sir Graham Brady is what the threshold might be in terms of getting into that first round of votes. Because at the moment there's only eight MPs. Now some of the candidates haven't got eight. It could go as high potentially as 20, maybe even higher than that. And in those circumstances, as I conclude, quite a few of them could already drop out. And then the big questions are asked about where do they and their supporters fall behind. And that's why this process, in some ways, Patrick, is so unpredictable. Yeah, look, absolutely. Darren, thank you very much. We'll be lobbing it back over to you as and when Graham Brady, Sir Graham Brady, will eventually emerge. Don't take your eyes off this show, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, because it's all about to kick off. Sir Graham Brady is expected to make a big announcement right there on College Green, which we'll be throwing to you inevitably throughout the show, I would imagine, if he does get a wiggle on. Uh, and he's going to outline exactly the rules for the runners and the riders. Very important stuff, this. How many nominations will they actually need? Uh, and also the time frame involved as well. Also, as well, like I said, blink and you miss it tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Blink and you miss it, because there's going to be a big poll dropping live whilst we're on air of Conservative voters who reveal, apparently, quotes, an astonishing result, an astonishing result from Conservative Home as to who they want as their next leader. But I opened up what I'm going to talk about right now, which is, for me, the major issue, you can, you can tart it up all you want, OK? You can talk about the cost of living crisis, you can talk about anything, you can talk about Ukraine, you can talk about all this kind of stuff, net zero. OK, fine. One of the biggest issues in this country has always been and will always be immigration, specifically illegal immigration, mass illegal immigration, and this Rwanda deal. Now, I've said it before, I don't think it's a deal. I think it's basically foreign aid 
essentially, as far as I can tell, because it not really sent anyone over there. I mean, just today alone, as our wonderful Polly Middlehurst revealed, there were 800 people who crossed the Channel. And the rest, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest, the number of migrants making the journey across the Channel in these small boats rose above 13,000 over the weekend, making control over the UK's borders a key leadership election issue. Former Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who'd been silent on the policy previously, conspicuously, finally confirmed his support for the scheme. We've got Jeremy Hunt, apparently, pledged to expand the scheme to other countries. There we go. So Hunt's rolling out the red carpet to other areas as well. Three out of four Conservative voters support the scheme, which hasn't successfully deported a single migrant yet, after the first planned flight was, of course, grounded in June due to last-minute legal challenges. And I am joined now on this very issue by the man himself. It's uh, immigration lawyer Ivan Sampson. Ivan, thank you very, very much for joining me. Right, OK, so immigration obviously is a, is a key issue for this country. It always has been, it always will be. And I think that the Tory candidate who potentially pledges to get hold of it most will actually do it. Is there any chance of this Rwanda deal actually happening? Um, it's unlikely. Right. The, um, the High Court's going to look at it on the 19th of July, as you know, on whether the proposal itself, the policy, is lawful itself. Um, lots of lawyers have argued, and I'm being one of them, that right. it's not lawful. You... So why is it not lawful? Well, the main reason is you can't subcontract your obligations, international treaties. Is that a moral argument and not a legal argument? No, it's, it's a legal argument. We, we're bound by the Refugee Convention. Mm. That means um, asylum refugees are entitled to claim asylum here. Now, the policy that the government proposes is, is that they're only going to carry out the initial asylum screening interview which, in my experience, lasts about 30 minutes. Mm. And they're going to make an assessment of the, uh, whether it's a genuine claim or not. Yeah. If it's not, mm. they get shipped off to Rwanda. Yeah. Rwanda then consider the asylum claim. Mm. Now, in 70 years that we've been assessing asylum claims, we get it wrong 50% of the time. But isn't that made more difficult for us by people ditching documents in the channel, not telling us where they're from, not telling us what they're... Uh, intentions are, or, or, or any of this stuff. I mean, uh, we're, we're, of course, it's, 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 like, it's like playing Where's Wally, isn't it? How, how on earth could you get it right 50% of the time if, if they're not telling you who they are or where they're from? Well, I think the whole system is... Uh, the process is wrong here. Well, how do you get that right? Sorry to interrupt, but how do you get that right? If people are going to ditch their documents in the channel, people are going to come here illegally and not be upfront with us about who they are or where they're from, how on earth is that our system's fault? Well, on the identity issue, there's other ways you can do that. For, uh, there, there's... Dental records is against their human rights, apparently. No, no. Well, you can assess them from um, assessment teams. And the Home Office have been doing this for many years. So they ask a series of questions. So if you say you're from Syria, for example, mm. there'll be a raft of questions they've got to answer. And if they don't answer them... And there's also accents and th what they look like. Mm. Um, and they get it... I mean, we can get it right most of the time, but the, what I propose is that the UNCHR needs to get involved. You see, the world, the member states of the Refugee Convention mm. don't take their fair share of asylum seekers. Mm. We certainly don't. We take about 26,000 a year, which has gone down since 1992. It's close to 100,000. Well, yeah, but the, the, the problem is there, what's not gone down is hospital waiting times, the uh, overburden on, on schools, our, our housing crisis. You know, it's all very well and good, you know, wanting to throw your arms around the world, but where do we put them? Look, if we're going to sign up to international treaty, then we've got to abide by its rules. If we don't like it, let's come out. But you know what? The uh, Suella Bravmans is suggesting that we come out the European Convention on Human Rights. Mm. Do you know in Europe, East and West, two countries that are not in the Convention? Mm. 
Russia and Belarus. OK. So we'd be lining up with countries like oh, Russia and Belarus... Is that not a slight... Forgive me. Is that not a slightly lazy argument? Because, you know, it's all very well and good saying, you know, Russia and Belarus are the only country... It doesn't mean that we're trying to be Russia or Belarus, does it? We're just trying to do our own thing. Um, the convention was drafted by English lawyers mm. and it sets out fundamental right, human rights. And they're the principles that this country was built on. And for us to say, well, we can do it better, how? When other, all the other uh, signatories of the Council of Europe say this is the standard. So I find well, it but, hard but, to but, believe but, how but, but we then, can come up with something better. Well, is it not a self-defeating argument? Because we, you're saying we drew it up. So yes. we came up with it. So yes. we came up with it. So by definition, we'd be all right to do it on our own again, wouldn't we? Um, those, those principles are fundamental human rights. Right. The right to life. The right so we're not to killing people, are we? Well, let me tell you about Rwanda. Right. So... The country information report the Home Office has, it reports about the government torturing, uh, killing, assassinating political opponents. Mm. And the report itself accepts it. So we're going to send people to a country which has got a track record of assassinating people. Now, the right to a fair trial, it doesn't exist in Rwanda. So the poli have you read the policy? I've read, read yeah, I have read it. Yeah, but, I'm, but, but I'm, to be honest with you, I'm in favour of it. Right? Yeah. So, but if you, if you read the policy, <laughs> if you really look into the policy, a lot of it says it's under Rwandan law. Yeah. But well, what is Rwandan law? They yeah. they don't have a judicial system to deal with uh, failed asylum seekers. Okay. So we can't just wash our hands and say hear no evil, see no evil. Mm. Here's I many. It's a transaction, is what we've done. Well, well, some, yeah, well, it's a deal. Well, supposedly it's a deal. I mean, it's not actually come to fruition yet, has it? I, I suppose. Just very lastly, how many asylum seekers are you going to take into your house? Um, look, what's important is, is that is the policy lawful? It clearly is. Yeah. And the government are going to be found out. I have to say, you talk about Jeremy Hunt. Yeah. And he yeah. supports the Rwanda. I don't, I don't think he does. No, I, it's, it's, there's mixed reports on that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I... I my view is he says, I support a plan. Yeah, yeah. The right. only candidate of all the potential candidates, mm. he says there should be asylum centres. And if you have those centres, there's mm. no need for people to come across the channel. Mm. And even if they do come across the channel, we just send them back to the centres. So if we have a uh, processing centres right around the globe, mm. managed by the UNCHR, okay. and have a fair distribution of asylum seekers, that's going to work. It's a global solution. It, it's a global solution. There certainly needs to be one. I appreciate it. I enjoyed that bit of back and forth, I, I must say, Ivan. Thank you very, very much. Great Pleasure. to have you on the show. Of course, that was Ivan Sampson there, who is, of course, an immigration lawyer. How do you feel about it? Well, we're about to find out, because in our poll, we asked you, would you support someone who doesn't support the Rwanda deportation bill? That was our Twitter poll. And here we go. The results are in. You can see them on your screens there. If you're listening to us on radio, I'll just tell you. It's 15.4%. 15.4% said yes. 84.6% said no. So 84... Well, that's rounding up. 85% of you would not support a candidate who doesn't back the Rwanda deportation bill. I suspect... And I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, ladies and gentlemen, of course, but I suspect that what you really want... It's just a functional plan. What we've got at the minute is the Rwanda deportation bill. Of course, we've had Ivan on there who's kind of articulated uh, that, that, that maybe there, there are certain other solutions, some, some kind of, you know, asylum processing centres as well. I suspect that what that poll really tells us is that you just want a plan that works, right? But there we go. That's the result. 85% of you, ladies and gentlemen, said you would not support a candidate who doesn't support the Rwanda deal. Well, I tell you what, shall we find out what other results?
have just dropped. Live here on Farage with me, Patrick Christie's. Do not ever blink, because you'll miss it on this show today. It's a massive, massive news day, this. Here we go. Conservative Home have just dropped the results of their polls of Conservative Party members about who they want. Who do you reckon, ladies and gents? Shall I tell you? I'll tell you. Penny Mordaunt has 20% of the vote, and Kemi Badenoch as well has 19%. They are now the clear favourites. Just to repeat, ladies and gentlemen, Penny Mordaunt and Kemi Badenoch are the two favourites. And Rishi Sunak is on 12%. Suella Braverman is on 10%. And Liz Truss is also on 10%. That's the result of a poll conducted specifically targeting Conservative voters. And ladies and gentlemen, that's who elects our next Tory leader. That's who elects the next Prime Minister. So it's telling stuff, that, isn't it? Uh, it's going to be uh, well, a gripping ride, basically. There we go. But, ladies and gentlemen, we've got Lowe's coming your way. We will be keeping track of it, by the way, as well. We're going to have to throw at some point, hopefully, if he gets a wiggle on, to Sir Graham Brady, who's supposed to be announcing the details of exactly how this Tory leadership campaign is going to be run. Timeframes, exactly the number of uh, MPs to support them that we're going to need. So it's going to be big. That We're going to go live to College Green. But... It's not the only story in town. No, of course not, because we're going to be talking as well about net zero. The Dutch have kicked off. That's right. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It's like Canada, but this time it's orange, because basically what the load of people are doing, the Dutch farmers are getting their tractors and they're saying no to net zero. We're going to be going, fingers crossed anyway, to a guy whose name I'm going to struggle to pronounce. I believe it's Jeroen van Manen. So, I mean, we can all agree it's Dutch. Uh, and Andy Mayer as well, who's going to be in the studio, a friend of the show, the brilliant, the one, the only Andy Mayer of the IEA to whiz you through all the ins and outs of Net Zero. What an absolute catastrophe it'll be. Don't go anywhere. Yeah, Mark Stein's going to follow me and it's going to be box office as well, ladies and gentlemen. That ridiculous story. Your ears were not deceiving you there, by the way. Mark had a guest on who spoke out about grooming gangs. And instead of tackling the grooming gangs, the police knocked on her door and asked her to explain herself. This is Britain, ladies and gentlemen. But anyway, I asked you earlier, what issues matter to you the most in this Tory leadership race? And you've been getting in touch with me. John says, the most important thing for me is what our migration policy will be. Absolutely spot on, John. I called it earlier. It has been a mess for far too long. David's been on as well. How can you pick just one, he says. We're in a mess. Migration, cost of living. High tax. Well, a lot of them have come out, mixed reports about Jeremy Hunt, by the way, but a lot of them have come out and said that they basically back the Rwanda deal. What deal? As far as I can see, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's just foreign aid, right? We haven't actually sent anyone to Rwanda. The cost of living crisis is a crisis. Most of them have come out to say as well they want to lower tax. It's one thing saying it, it's another thing doing it. But one viewer who I believe is anonymous says, taxation and migration secure our borders and let us keep our money. Well, it's just... You're living, in, you're living in a fantasy world there, viewer, but there we go. No, now, for me, obviously, Mike, this is Mike talking now. Mike says, for me, the most important issue is that the new Conservative Party leadership must address the woke takeover of our institutions. And I think, Mike, that's absolutely spot on. We really do have a lot on here. I mean, for goodness gracious me, I read a story yesterday that nearly made me choke on my coffee, actually, which was about children, young children, being taught things at school about how... Prostitution is basically okay. Now, this is not a this is not an anti-prostitute rant. It'd be weird if I went on one of those. But um, you know, talking about how you know kinks and things like this, educating children about you know, sexual, I don't know. I suppose not deviances, but stuff like that, right? What? Why? Teach them maths, English, maybe a smattering of French and a bit of art, and leave it at that. But anyway, there we go. Alan's on. 
Alan says, the most important issue for the next PM to grapple with is how to deliver on all the promises given to the Brexiteers after voting for Brexit. Well, there we go. That's your views. Keep them coming in, people, OK? Make sure you get in touch. Farage at gbnews.uk. Yes, it's with me, Patrick Christie's, but still email that address. Anyway, huge protest now have swept the Netherlands as Dutch farmers resist new net zero laws that would limit livestock and fertiliser use in a bid to cut carbon emissions, right? So it's going to financially ruin them, basically. Thousands of farmers have used their tractors to block supermarkets, roads and airports in demonstrations across the country, some of which have turned violent. The protesters say that new laws would threaten their livelihoods and global food production, forcing many farms to downsize or go out of business. Supermarket shelves remain sparse as the Dutch farmers clutch protest signs, emblazoned with the message, no farmers, no food. And if you're listening on radio right now, we've just shown a footage of that. Basically, it's a motorway in Holland, essentially, with a load of people in tractors protesting. And joining me right now is someone who's been part of these protests, and it's dairy farmer Jeroen van Manen, whose name I apologise, I've probably just butchered, I'm afraid, but uh, there we are, uh, of the Dutch Dairy Farmers Association, joining me now from Zeewold in the Netherlands, and he's been protesting against the policy. Look, thank you very, very much for joining me, and apologies about your name, right? But um, talk to me about what's going on, all right? What's happening with you? Why are you so livid? <clears throat> Well, uh, Dutch government uh, made some plans uh, last uh, years, actually. It's, uh, the protests have been going uh, for, uh, in Holland for already two and a half years. And uh, one month ago, they made some plans. They divided uh, Holland in a few different regions. And it's all about uh, cutting our nitrogen emissions back. Uh, but some of the regions, uh, they want to have to cut it back 12%, 46%, 75% or 95%. And techniques or innovations are not allowed, so the only way to do it is to cut back the number of your uh, of your herd, and uh, actually it will cut back uh, the, the the percentage of your income also. So uh, yeah, lots of farmers in Holland fear for yeah. the future. But 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 what I don't understand, and what a lot of people we're, we're going to bring in very shortly, by the way, just sitting next to me now is our kind of resident net zero expert, Andy Mayer from the Institute of Economic Affairs, who, who's all over this. So we'll get his view on a, a more international perspective on this very, very shortly. But in terms of what's going on in the Netherlands right now, does it feel like your government is willing to essentially sacrifice you and your livelihood, the, the, the beating heart of the nation, the people who keep the nation fed and watered in this ridiculous pursuit of some kind of big green agenda that probably no one's ever voted on? Yes, that's true. It's very much true. You know, uh, they want to get rid of uh, farms to make some nature land and also build houses, uh, houses which we don't need for uh, Dutch people because a normal uh, Dutch couple would get 1.8 or 1.9 children, but they're building them for the refugees. You know, 100,000 people are immigrating to Holland uh, every year, uh, so it make up uh, for about 1 million in 10 years' time. And that's what I want to do, build 1 million houses. Well, we're having something similar over here. And as well, tomorrow I'm actually going off to a refugee uh, hotel or I suppose an illegal immigrant hotel, one may say. And it's really interesting actually to hear that what's happening over where you are because you paint a very similar picture to the concerns that a lot of people over here have. And it is really that thing of we have a lot of things in common. Just because Britain voted to leave the European Union, we didn't vote to leave Europe. You are still our, our brothers and sisters, right? And we share 
some very, very common issues, right? There's the migrant crisis, there's the net zero crisis, and the fact that sometimes we're being led by donkeys. But um, just quickly, what are you going to... What are you actually going to... How are you going to, 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 to progress with this protest? So what's the end game here? Are you just going to try and bring the country to its knees to make a point? Yeah, probably there is no end. Fire farmers will fight for their future and for the families and for the farms and also for food on the table for the citizens. So there is no end. Right. And just on some, some just very quickly, sorry about this, but, but I just want to get you on this. We, we've been told a bit about some of these protests turning violent. Is that true or is that just media guff? Yeah, most of it is media. 99% of the of the protests are uh, are still pretty friendly, you know. Uh, so okay. the rest of it is, uh, is media and uh, trying to make... Uh, the, the support from the from the people uh, less, okay. but uh, it's not working. The support from people is is massive. Well, 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 look, you know, we've got a group of people here who basically are saying enough is enough, ladies and gentlemen. And these people, how can you, how can you possibly disagree with someone who goes, our government is about to take away, f take food out of my children's mouths, take my livelihood away and I'm going to get in my tractor and I'm going to do something about it. I say all power to you. You're a bad man of there. I'll talk to you again very soon, my good man. Thank you very much. Right, now, without any further dither and delay, we've got Andy Mayer here. He's a friend of the channel. He's brilliant. He's the one and only. And he's been uh, basically our kind of resident net zero expert. You've cut through the noise, Andy. Um, just talk to me a bit about the bigger picture here, then. So the Dutch have kicked off, but this is a global issue, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a global issue that's going to hit Europe first, first and foremost. Mm. And it's so much worse than the way it was just portrayed. I mean, right. I was, when I was reading up on this stuff, I was thinking, no, it's got to be an exaggeration. No government's clearly trying to put out the half their farms out of business. But that's exactly what the Dutch government is trying to do. They have gone completely mad. Um, there is an environmental issue here, just to be clear, right. why they're doing this, which is all about nitrogen NOx emissions. It's not quite the same thing oh. as net zero, but right. it's all linked to the same sort of environmental strategy. And what they want to do is get those emissions down. But the way they're going about it is they've simply taken a UN direction that they've then been translated into an EU law that has then been translated into a set of yearly emissions that hit Holland most because they export the most from agriculture. Right. Do, do you think that the people in charge really believe in this environmental cause? Because, or do you think they're just doing it? Because it's really weird for where I'm sitting, really weird, that clearly they're happy to put a lot of their own citizens out of business, cost a lot of people a lot of money, must be inconvenienced people, for the pursuit of the... Do they really think the world's going to end? It's not they think the world's going to end, but they think it matters. And they've got this, this equivalent to net zero trap where they're so obsessed with the target, they're making terrible decisions. Because the environmental impact from some of these things is uncertain. There's been a big Royal Society report on this in the UK mm. where they estimated the impact of the similar emissions was about £700 million a year. Mm. Now, the Dutch agriculture industry is one of the biggest in the world. It's exporting about 100 billion oh. every year. And that's a trade-off. And they're yeah. going to destroy all of that. And it won't actually make much difference to global well, emissions of nitrogen, isn't it? Because they'll just offshore it. Other people elsewhere will be producing the cattle that have been killed in Holland to satisfy this net zero goal. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? It's one of those things that is, weirdly, the net zero stuff is what arguably a, a lot of vegans are behind as well, and now we've got cattle being slaughtered. But um, just, just, just lastly, uh, Andy, I mean, this is going to kick off, I would have thought, throughout the world, frankly, but do you think there's a lack of faith in humanity here? The idea that we are not capable of coming up, without maybe necessarily making too many changes, right, we're not capable of coming up with a solution to 
this, this environmental crisis ourselves. It's, we've got to make loads of changes now. Do you not think that human beings are going to sort this out? We're going to come up with something? Well, well, the Dutch know that they can because the Dutch farmers reduced their emissions by about 60% over the last few years. And their reward for that is for the government to turn around and say, not good enough despite there being very little evidence that it's only the agricultural sector that's causing the problem. Mm. They're just taking the brunt of it because they think they can. It's 2% of the population. They think they're a soft target. Well, they've clearly proven well, they're, they're not a soft target. And you can expect those protests to start spreading into other countries that are facing similar emission limits unless their governments wise up and take, as you say, a more mm. pragmatic approach and believe in people and invent mm. the solutions. Andy, you're an absolute legend. Thank you very much, my good man. Andy May, that, of course, of the IEA. When Andy talks about net zero and about the environment, you better listen because he's always right. Andy May, thank you very, very much. Right, OK, so now my first What the Farage moment comes from the one and only Nadine Dorries. That's right, one of Boris's biggest loyalists, actually a, a superfan, some would say. And she's been speaking to my colleague and indeed friend, Dan Watson, in an exclusive GB News interview. Now she made a little dig at Rishi Sunak. I tell you what, she didn't hold back. Here it is. You were obviously sitting around the cabinet table uh, with those two men. Did you have any idea that they were plotting against the prime minister? Um, I had my suspicions, um, not least because when some difficult decisions were taken, like when we wanted to lift restrictions from COVID, it was very difficult to get the chancellor at meetings to, to commit to any policy at all. Rishi had been planning his campaign to the letter, launched it the day it was ready, and everybody else is kind of like blindsided and thinking, what's going on? We've all been working so hard. How can he have been that campaign ready? Well, the answer is he wasn't working so hard. We all were. And, and I'm afraid we found ourselves in quite a difficult position. It's strong stuff. I tell you what, Dan Watson has really pulled one out of the bag there, hasn't he? And you can watch that full interview on Dan Watson tonight, right here on GB News, and it's following up as well a bit later on. It's going to be, well, about 9pm, really, I suppose. You might be leading in on it. I'm not quite sure, but he starts at 9pm, so you better tune in just in case. Uh, but just reacting to that, ladies and gentlemen, how do you feel about Rishi? It went from dishy Rishi, didn't it, to, to be honest with you, maybe a little bit of a snake. Where did all this Partygate stuff come from? Where did it all come from? Now it's emerged, of course, that he's been campaign ready, as Nadine Dorries said, for rather a long time. A very slick promotional video, arguably, some would say, recorded quite far in advance. Now, this guy, OK, has got a pretty shaky record. God, be careful what I say here now. A questionable record when it comes to, well, I suppose, paying full tax in the UK. Certainly his wife, OK, we all know the stories, right? There's no insinuation, of course, that Richie Sunak's done anything illegal. Uh, but... Bit of a shaky record. A lot of people say, hey, maybe he's a bit out of touch. Maybe he's too rich. For me, it's very simple. He's too short to be our leader. You can't have a leader that small. You can't. I'm sorry, he's teeny tiny. It's teeny tiny Rishi. And I'm sorry, it's not an ad hominem attack here, but you cannot have someone that Emmanuel Macron looks down on, right, as your leader. It's about stature on the world stage. And Rishi Sunak looks like a toddler. Right, my uh, next What the Farage moment is from the Church of England. That's right. And they've said that there is no official definition of a woman, which is interesting, isn't it? Because um, I think in the Bible it talks about Adam and Eve, doesn't it? But there we go. Uh, in a written reply to a question submitted by General Synod, a senior bishop uh, said that although the meaning of the word woman was previously thought to be self-evident, because it is, additional care was now needed 
Well, the Reverend Angela Berners-Wilson, England's first woman priest, said that she is not totally happy with the answer, but added that the issue is, of course, sensitive. I mean, is it? A woman is a woman. Why is it so difficult for people to say? I tell you what, talking about the Tory leadership race as well, this has been an issue that potentially could have come back to bite Penny Morden. If you're just joining us, by the way, a couple of things quickly, OK? Sir Graham Braid, leader of the 22 committee, is supposed to be making, although he's been supposed to be making it for the last half an hour, I and mean, we get to see him, but supposed to be making a statement from College Green about essentially the runners and riders and the formalities of this Conservative leadership election. We are going to be, fingers crossed, lobbing over to that at some point soon. But also, as well, little bit of breaking for us as well. We were live on air when this happened, which is the Conservative home poll dropped, which is Conservative Party members saying who they wanted. And Penny Mordaunt was the favourite, OK, on 20%. And Kemi Badenoch was the second favourite on 19%. Rishi Sunak, who we've just been speaking about, was third on 12%. So two clear frontrunners there. But it's on that issue as well, isn't it, about what is a woman? Now, Penny Morden, actually, for a little while, got into a bit of a sticky wicket about all of this because she previously basically said that trans women are women. Now, OK, fair enough. That's, that's, that's it's not my view, of course. Maybe it's yours at home. I don't know. Let me know. I mean, I, my, my, my view is pretty straightforward, right, on, on this, which is if you're born a woman, you're a woman. If you're born a man, you can't just call yourself a woman. Women did not throw themselves in front of horses as part of the suffragette movement so that a man with a penis could turn up and say that he was a woman, right? So that's my view on that. But Penny Morden actually came out and explained her decision on that. Now, she said, yes, I did say that trans women are women, but she also said she's got a great track record of empowering women's rights. And she rattled off a fair few things that she's done in the past. And actually, I think she's kind of explained her way out of it. But let us know what you think. That poll again that just dropped while we were live right here on GB News was that Penny Mordaunt is the frontrunner as it currently stands on 20% of the vote. Kemi Badnot coming up strong on 19%. Dishy Rishi, yeah, third on 12%. And I just wonder whether or not he's a bit too slick, whether or not he's a bit too rich, and whether or not he's a bit too sure. Here we go, people. Graham Brady, uh, right now. The here he is, leader of the 22 committee, outlining what's going to go on in the Tory leadership race. Take it. And close tomorrow. We'll have a first ballot on Wednesday and a second ballot is likely on Thursday. We expect uh, 20 supporters uh, for each candidate, a proposer and a seconder who will be public, and 18 others. Uh, we'll also expect that on the first ballot, any candidate to proceed must have uh, won at least 30 votes from parliamentary colleagues. Uh, any questions? Yes, and some will say that you're discriminating against the lesser-known candidates. What we try to do is find a balance where we're making sure the parliamentary stages are concluded reasonably rapidly before the summer recess, uh, but we do believe we can have that proper discussion within the party. Obviously, we know our parliamentary candidates already. We do need to make sure there's a decent period of time before the result is announced on the 5th of September. Uh, we need to make sure there's a reasonable amount of time for the party membership in the country to have a chance to meet and question the candidates uh, at regional hustings. And so, so just to be clear, 5th of September is the deadline the, uh, for... The sorry, so, so, so Graham, sorry, if I can ask. Just to be clear, when do you want to get down to the final two? What's the date for that? Well, we'll get down to the final two as quickly as that happens. Uh, we will have successive ballots until that happens. Uh, I would hope uh, that we will do it relatively quickly. Uh, we will have the first two ballots this week, 
and then begin uh, ballots next week, probably on Monday, and it may be that we reach the final two at that point. On what Monday. Well, I think the result uh, should be announced on the 5th of September, uh, which will be when the House returns from the summer recess. Uh, I think that's a perfectly reasonable timetable. Uh, what the party board and the volunteers on the party board were very keen to ensure is that there were going to be sufficient opportunities for hustings meetings around the country and we've reached a, a satisfactory agreement on that. I think, I think the agreement was about a dozen, but that may include some digital online meetings. Um, so, Greg, can I jump back in? I, it seems to be a, quite a big field at the moment, uh, a lively uh, contest. Uh, I hope we will have a uh, very constructive uh, contest, uh, but a, a really good opportunity for a proper, healthy, constructive debate about the future direction of the Conservative so, Party. So, Graham, can I just, if you, can you just, I just reflect on what's gone on? Because you've set a quite a high threshold here, but this is a terrible distraction for the country, for the party, for the government at a time when the economy is in difficulty, people are facing a cost of living crisis. Number one, you want to get this over quickly. Number two, you are surely worried about your party's reputation in this absolute mess. I'm very keen that we get this uh, concluded as smoothly, cleanly and rapidly as possible. And certainly we should have a conclusion and a new leader of the party elected uh, and announced on the 5th of September. Are you worried about the party's reputation, sir? I think this is a great opportunity for us, for us to have a really good, constructive debate about the future of the party. I think it'll be a healthy thing to do, and we will have that result in a few weeks' time. Uh, Sir Graham, as uh, representative of the backbench, as chairman of the 1922, are you comfortable that Boris Johnson will remain as caretaker till September the 5th? This is a simple constitutional principle in this country. A prime minister remains prime minister until there is a successor. Uh, so that is... Uh, that's not my responsibility. Uh, we are dealing with our responsibilities as quickly as we reasonably can. Thank and you very Scott much. Graham, just one more thing. Were you surprised when the Prime Minister, when you went to see him on Wednesday, that he didn't resign at that point when you told him he didn't have the support of the party? Were you surprised? I think much will be uh, written on this subject and we'll have uh, lengthy discussions and debates about it into the future. Uh, the crucial thing is that we've arrived at the point we're at and we now have a very clear plan uh, to take things forward and, and resolve the leadership question. So Graham, just a final question. Was there any mention in the meeting that anybody that goes forward into this contest will have to guarantee that they will go to the postal ballot at the moment? Yes, we're very keen on that. So uh, I certainly I will be seeking assurances when we get towards that uh, later point. Thank you very much. Right, OK, well, off he pops. That was Sir Graham Brady there, of course, the leader of the Backbench 1922 Committee of the Conservative Party, who's basically decided to outline what's going to happen, the formalities of what is going to be a gripping Conservative leadership race. And here to pick the bones out of it is our political editor, Darren McCaffrey, who just watched that, watched it live. Darren, I believe you are there now. Right, OK, so give us, give us, give us, the, bullet, give us the bullet points, mate. What happened? 
so essentially, I mean, the top line is that we're going to find out, absolutely confirmed there by Sir Graham Brady, that we are going to know who the new Conservative leader and Prime Minister of this country is on the 5th of September when Parliament resumes after the summer recess. We also learned that the ballots for who wants to stand in that election to be the new Conservative leader opens and closes tomorrow. So that means that any other candidate who wants to simply get their name down i.e. Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, who seems to be the last major one who would do so, need to do that by tomorrow. Then we're expecting the first ballot on Wednesday. The threshold to get involved in that is going to be set at 20, which is quite high, given the fact that only Rishi Sunak and, today Penny Borden have crossed that threshold, though a lot of the Conservative Party, a lot of their MPs haven't publicly declared who they would back. And then, interestingly, to get into the next round, into the second round, you need to secure at least 30 MPs. So this is the interesting thing, isn't it? They're obviously trying to whittle down the number of MPs who get through each round and make it more and more difficult uh, to do so. When asked when that process would end, he said he wanted to do it as soon as possible, uh, but that in the end that could go into next week. They want to get this sorted out before Parliament goes into recess at the end of next week. But the 5th of September, we will have a new Conservative leader, Patrick, and a new Prime Minister. Goodness gracious me, it's kicked right off. Darren McCaffrey, thank you very, very much. Darren McCaffrey there, of course, our political editor, who just watched, if you're just joining us, OK, I'll fill you in very briefly, basically. Uh, Sir Graham Brady, the leader of the Backbench 1922 Tory committee, has essentially outlined the facts when it comes to how this leadership contest is going to work. The 5th of September is that date when we will have, ladies and gentlemen, a new Tory leader and a new Prime Minister. I've been asking you throughout the show, what would it take for you to vote for someone? What are the big issues... For you, surprise, surprise, it's immigration, immigration, immigration. So, Barbara, do get in touch. Farage at gbnews.uk. I am, of course, covering for the big guy and I will be all week. But Talking Pints comes up very, very shortly with Simon Newton, who's a former bodyguard to the stars and he's an actor as well. The reason why, OK, is, of course, we saw the very tragic uh, assassination of the former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Now, I, I kind of wanted to just ask, really, how do you protect someone? What is close protection all about? Basically, how do you stop someone getting assassinated? All of that comes your way very shortly. Don't you dare move. Yes, hello, everybody. Your eyes are not deceiving you. Nigel Farage is actually away. It's me, Patrick Christie's filling in for him. I must say, I'm having an absolute whale of a time. So thank you, everybody, who's been tuning in. Well, joining me tonight on Talking Pints is former bodyguard to the stars, now a business owner, an actor. There's nothing this man can't do. It's Simon Newton. Well, cheers. Cheers, mate. Nice to meet you. Thank you very much for coming in. Also, full disclosure, I must say, sorry to <laughs> shatter the illusion, everybody. This is actually apple juice, all right? OK, so... That gets me out of trouble. Right, um, so, how are you? I'm well, you? Yeah, very well. Thank you both for coming in. I know it's going to be a bit short and sweet. You can blame Sir Graham Brady for that. You can probably take him out, to be fair, if you well, want to. But, <laughs> I'll have a word. Um, so, so, talk to me a bit about you first. So, you're a former bodyguard to the stars. Just, what was that all about? Um, that was a hectic 17 years. I started <laughs> off um, with the military. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I kind of... While, while I was in the military, I kind of got offered a job in the, the private security world, working in the Middle East. So right. straight away, that was my transition into becoming a bodyguard, which I kind of hadn't a plan that early on. I was only about 24 at the time. Oh, wow. So I was very young. Yeah, I got a job working in Iraq um, quite early on. So, yeah, I did that for quite a number of years. I left there, went to Afghanistan for a number of years, working for the Foreign Commonwealth Office as a customs protection mm. officer. 
Um, mm. I went on to ship security, all tankers, um, LPG tankers out in the Gulf of Aden for anti-piracy. Gosh, um, you don't mess about, do you? No, lots of tick all the boxes. And then uh, <laughs> I come back into London, yeah. um, where I started with uh, Middle Eastern Royal Family, um, and everything sort of took off from there, from London. Um, yeah, I mean, it's gone from there, really, to what it is today. Yeah, and I mean, just we're, we're going to move on in a little bit because obviously Shizu Abe got assassinated as a former yeah, yeah. PM. So I want to talk to you about that. But I think just, look, it's it, people like me, right, who are just civvies, I suppose, are <laughs> absolutely fascinated by people like you. Right. You must have had some incredibly hairy moments. Uh, yeah, of course, certainly working away. In the UK, we're quite lucky. It's, you know, we, it can be risky at times, but not so much in the UK. Middle East, obviously, working in, you know, war-torn countries, if you like, it was rough some days. Right. But not all the time. You know, you yeah. don't, you're not living that day every day. So, um, yeah, of course, yeah, it's rough and, and you were, you were, is it right, must right say you bodyguard to Michael Jackson? I was, yeah, 2006. What was that like? Hectic. Um, <laughs> it was good fun. I, I didn't fully appreciate the job. I was 26 years old. Right. Um, and it was another job for me at the time. And I, you know, I, I took it on. And I, yeah, it's just. Was he as weird as he looked? Um, he was quiet. He's quiet. Very, very subdued, quiet, quite, really? quiet man. Yeah, yeah. Did, and, 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 and I'm not being funny, but you know, did, did you have to step in at time? Were there? Was it? Was it more mad fans, or was it like actual threats to life? Uh, no, not. It wasn't threats to life, but it, the, the, the fans were super mad for some of them. Um, but there's five of us on that job. You wouldn't be able right. to look after someone like that on your own, really. It's yeah, it's a, it's a big job. Three or four vehicles, um, difficult to move them around. But yeah, I mean, it's a good job for me at that age again. It was a good job. Absolutely. Now I just want to move on because I like look. Sorry, we got squeezed by Sir Graham Brady, right? But uh, classic. But um, look, in terms of what went on in, in in Japan, I mean, you're you can look at it from a professional element of it. So basically, yeah. a guy came up behind the former prime minister and shot him twice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that shouldn't have been allowed to happen, obviously. It shouldn't have been allowed to happen, but there's a lot of circumstances what, from, from what I mean. I've only got the, the, the footage, what everyone's seen to go by. Obviously, I don't know yeah. anything other than that. So, first of all, it's very different to comment correctly on that because you only can go what the rest of the world can see. To my knowledge, it's a handmade... Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, handmade, handmade firearm. There was no sort of intelligence before that. The guy was a, a lone wolf, if you want to call him that. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult to, to combat that. Mm. Um, you know, you can't treat everybody as hostile. Right. There was no indicators at all that, that was going to happen. And just because you've got a 12-man or 20-man or 30-man security team doesn't mean to say you're invincible. About 1% of if they closed the security net to sort of a good 3%, you know, to mm. keep it tight, some, some days, unfortunately, that 3% gets touched. Yeah. And that's what happened that day, really. Just very, very quickly, very quickly, I'm going to shout it out here, but I want one more. Um, do you have to constantly be on alert? And does that have an impact on you? Because can you switch off or not? Uh, well, outside of work... Well, when you're at work, you must have to be on it all yeah. the time. And yeah. Does that have a knock-on effect? Um, you get used to it. Right. When you're out, if, if, you're, if you're in a container, so you're in a hotel, if the person you're looking after is away, it's fine, forget about it. But as soon as you step out of that hotel to wherever you're going to, to, to you're back in that hotel that day, oh. it's constantly on it all the time. And if you, if you leave it a second, it can go wrong. Well, I'll tell you what, rather you than me, mate. Look, thank you very much. Cheers. I'm sorry it was short and sweet, right. like I said, but we picked you picked a bad news day to come on, unfortunately. <laughs> or a very good news day, depending on which way you're looking at it. Cheers, mate. You're All welcome. Best. Let's chat again soon, mate. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated by you. That was Simon Newton there, of course. And frankly, there was loads more to get stuck into there. But former bodyguards of the stars, now a business owner and an actor as well. And I tell you what, it seems like quite a nice chap to boot. Right, well, look, coming up next, where's this show gone? 